Welcome back to the Business Processes Simplified podcast. And in a moment, I'm going to give you the full bio on our guest, Alan Dibb. This episode was taken from the Business Systems Summit, so you'll hear that intro in a moment. But I did want to summarize things right up front so you knew exactly what you're in for and why you're in the right place. Obviously, in uncertain times like we have right now, it's more important than ever to make sure that your marketing is clear and make sure that it speaks to a specific person and solves a specific problem. Yet most marketing is a little bit hodgepodge. It tries to be something for everyone and it doesn't solve a problem and therefore it doesn't end up breaking through the noise. Now, in this episode, you're going to learn how Alan has simplified this process to get your plan onto one page. In fact, his methodology is called the one page marketing plan. There are nine steps to it and it goes through three separate phases. There is the before, during and after phases and we'll walk through each of those phases have three steps and all of this can be distilled onto one page which then gives you clarity around how to bring your message to the market. Now, as you know, I'm a believer that business is simply a collection of systems and marketing is one really critical system that you need to master. If you want to learn a little bit more about the way that I see business and how I approach things, you've got to check out my new book. It's launching in August 2020. It's called Systemology, The Proven Solution to Business Systems, Profits and Opportunities. If you haven't already, head over to systemology.com forward slash book to sign up. That's systemology.com forward slash book to sign up to the list or find out once it has been released. Now, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. Welcome to the System Hub Podcast. Hola. Konnichiwa. Guten Tag. Where we interview world-class experts. You have to have a lot of passion for what you're doing. I was fanatical in my 20s. If you could find a way to produce a business that works without you, your life would change like that. Extracting, organizing, and optimizing their best systems and processes for rapid business growth. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Business Systems Summit. In this session, we're going to be chatting with Alan Dibb, who's the author of the One Page Marketing Plan, which is named as one of the top 10 marketing books for small business owners by the Huffington Post. He's grown various different businesses, built them up from the ground all the way through to sale, even earned the spot for one of them in the BRW Fast 100, which makes it one of Australia's fastest growing companies in the country. He's got a very good passion when it comes to clean, simple frameworks. And I think that's why I resonate so well with Alan's message. He's a, he's a lover of systems. And even when you read the one-page marketing plan, the different modules feel like systems in themselves. And there's also one big system, which is the one-page marketing plan that wraps it all together. So, yeah, it's, it's a perfect fit for what we're covering with the summit. And I have a mutual friend, uh, Scott Bywater, who introduced us. He was a previous speaker on the last summit. And he said, wow, you need to meet Alan. He's going to be, yeah, you two are going to get on like a house on fire. And I'm so glad that he connected with us. Um, we've been chatting and sort of I've been keeping an eye on what he's been doing and, and watching him grow and spread the word about the one-page marketing plan. So it's with great pleasure that I get to uh, welcome Alan to the call. Hey, Dave, pleasure to be on. Perfect. Well, thanks for uh, yeah agreeing to come onto the call. It's funny meeting via Zoom when you're in the same suburb as me. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to having you go through 
your one-page marketing plan. So we can jump straight in. I think right up front for these sessions, the first thing I like people to do is kind of like just talk to the purpose of this particular system or process, the problem that it solves and for whom, and then let's dive straight into the process and take us through those nine steps. Yeah, for sure. So the one-page marketing plan, it was really born out of a need that I saw where so many small business owners just didn't know what to do when it came to their marketing. And I was one of those. I, re- you know, It's the book I wish I had when I, when I was first learning marketing and I learned it the hard, difficult and expensive way. And so um, that's why I, um, I put together a, a one-page marketing plan where literally in a single page, you can plan out your whole marketing strategy and have a very sophisticated direct response marketing plan when you're done. I think that's what I find with marketing. There's just so many different moving parts and really just business in general. I think to be able to distill it down and have a clear line and focus, a logical linear process that a business owner can go through, that's that's really what resonated most with me about the process. Yeah, yeah very much so. I mean, I remember I'd attend seminars or I'd read a book or whatever, and I'd always get some piece of gold or some piece of value out of it. But there was no one who took me through the whole process who said, right, this is where you start, this is where you go next, this is where you go third, and this is where you end up, and have that holistic view of direct response marketing. And that that was what was very important for me to convey in the book, where we could take someone who knew nothing about marketing to having a very sophisticated knowledge of direct response marketing when they're done and have a plan ready to go and done. And it almost feels like almost like a base level minimum viable marketing system. It's like focus on getting these deployed. Mm. And then once you've got that going and it's humming and you come up with other ideas, it kind of plugs into the framework, but you've got all of your bases covered. So it's not like you're tipping leads into the top of your funnel and they're leaking out the back end because you're not doing a very good job of capturing them or nurturing them or even delivering a great product. So, I mean, I won't steal the thunder too much from the (laughs) But I'll let you, yeah, maybe if you want to take us through the the nine steps. Yeah, so if you visualize a single page divided into nine, actually, yeah, you've got the book right there. Well, uh, let's take a peek. I'll uh, (laughs) I'll, I'll add as a um, PDF (laughs) download just beneath this session. Perfect. uh, So someone can follow along, just download and print it out. Perfect. So it's a single one-page canvas divided into nine squares and it's three lots of three. So if we think about the before phase and the the before phase is before someone even knows that you exist. Uh, So they're not aware of you and the whole goal of the before phase is to get someone to recognize that you exist and kind of indicate interest. The next phase is the during phase. So someone's indicated interest and we want to nurture them through that whole process through your funnel, whatever you might call it. And then the goal of the during phase is to get them to make their first transaction with you. And then we move into the after phase. So that's when someone's already a client and how do we make them a raving fan who buys more from you, who refers new business to you and and so on. So they're the three major phases. Now within those phases, we've got three blocks within the canvas. So making a total of nine, nine blocks within the whole one page marketing plan canvas. And so we start with defining your target market. Who is your ideal customer? Who do we want to work with? Because we know that all customers and all revenue are not equal. So, right, a dollar from a customer who's a raving fan who refers new business to you, who you love working with, is not the same as a dollar from someone who's buying you because you're the cheapest price and who's difficult to work with and who pays late and all of those sorts of things. Despite what your bank manager might tell you, those dollars are not equal. 
So we want to highly define your target market. So we want to see who do we want to serve? Who is that person that we want to get into their mind so that we can really create a message that is compelling and that resonates with them? Yeah. What type of conditions or criteria do you look for when someone's selecting? Because it's that classic thing of, oh, my product and service is perfect for everybody. So a lot (laughs) of people always have trouble channeling it down. Are there any particular things that you, you ask or questions that can help them clarify what is a good target audience? Definitely. Definitely, definitely. So there's a process that we take people through and it's really identifying who's going to be profitable to work with, who's going to really value what you do and who's going to be fun to work with. You know, who are you going to love working with? Because someone can be profitable and, you know, someone can be fun to work with, but maybe they don't value what you do. So if we hit those three, that is really the, the perfect target market. So someone who's kind of fun to work with, because, you know, even if you're making a lot of money and even if you're converting what you're doing, you really don't want to be working with someone who's kind of a pain to work with, pays late and difficult to deal with and all that. We want to enjoy showing up to our businesses on a Monday morning and we want to love working with our clients. So we want to cover that fun factor. So they're fun to work with. They're a pleasure to work with. They value what you do. So when someone values what you do, there's not going to be kind of a commodity price negotiation. They're they're going to be lining up and asking to work with you. So those are three critical factors that I look at when choosing a target market. There are a few other factors and it kind of goes into determining your business model. And so we want to see, you know, who can pay a high price for your product or service? You know, sometimes there's someone who very much values and wants what you do, what you offer, but they just can't afford it. They're not the right client for you. So you want to be working with people who can actually afford you. And then we look at a, a range of other factors. So is there an opportunity to create recurring or repeating revenue? Is Are they spending their own money or are they spending other people's money? So that's an, another factor that you can look at. And you, other factors you might look at is the people that we're working with, is it going to be in a highly regulated industry or, or not such a regulated industry? So there are a range of factors, but really if it comes down to those three factors, who's fun to work with, who's going to value what you do and who's going to be profitable to work with, and then really selecting a target market where when they see your message, they say, hey, that's for me. Because if you're too general, if you say, hey, we help everyone, then that's another proxy for saying we help no one. Because what a lot of business owners do, they make the mistake of creating a laundry list of products and services and saying we help everyone with this and this and that. And it's because they don't want to exclude people and it feels logical. Hey, if we if we cast the widest net, we're going to get the, the most amount of business. And it's very counterintuitive, but that's not the case. People want to hire specialists, people who think, hey, this is for me. This is something that's going to work for me. So as an example, my wife injured her knee a a couple of months ago. And what did she type into Google? She typed in knee specialist and then the area where we live, right? So she didn't type in just generalist doctor or doctor who does all sorts of things, even though maybe a doctor that does heads, necks, backs, knees and everything like that might be able to help her. She typed in knee specialist into Google. So it's very important to understand that people will pay more to deal with specialists. And so that's why it's very, very important to select your target market and be hyper-focused on them. Yeah. Last point with that one, and are we talking about writing it down? Like, is this just a a paragraph of, you know, it's a 45-year-old male based in this particular country who works in this particular industry? Like, what is the actual 
end product or the way that you'd identify that look like? It could be that. That's what's called demographic factors. But what I like to look at more importantly is psychographic factors. So what are they thinking? What are they fearing? What are they hoping for? What's the result that they want? And demographic factors are a good proxy to those. So you can't go to a list broker and say, hey, give me people who wish that they were a lot richer or a lot more beautiful or whatever, depending on on what you do. So you use demographic factors as a, as a proxy. So if you're working with people who are business owners and, you know, business owners who kind of want to get to the next level through coaching or through whatever else, you might use demographics as a proxy to that. So it's not the fact that they're a 45-year-old male living in Mornington, that's important. It's the psychographic factors and we map those back to demographic factors. Yeah. And then I know that once you identify that target audience, which is step number one, it kind of leads into step number two, because now you can start to craft that message. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is where, you know, the rubber really hits the road. And we now want to get into the psychology of of our target market. What are the things that they're hoping for? What are the things that they're fearing? And this is all about really empathy, really stepping into the shoes of our target market and trying to understand what's keeping them up at 3am. You know, what do they want? What do they hope for? What do they fear? What prejudices do they have? And, you know, speaking to those fears, speaking to those hopes, and really getting into the mind. I think Gary Halbert said, get into the conversation that's going on in their mind. And that's very powerful Mm -hmm. when you can do that because when someone feels, hey, this guy gets me, this is for me, that's very, very powerful from a marketing perspective. And so we really want to get into the mind of that person, visualize what their day is like, have a, literally have a picture of what they might look like in your office, you know, so visualize them when you're writing copy, when you're creating a marketing campaign, when you're doing anything that that's related to your target market, really think of them, what's their day like. And it's often a lot easier if you are or have been part of that target market. Like for example, I work with business owners, small business owners, and I've been a business owner. I've been a business owner that struggled with marketing, that didn't know how to get the next client in the door, that was confused by the marketing. So I can speak very authentically from that perspective. Now, if I was going into a market where I just had no idea and I really didn't understand my client or the psychology of my client, I'd have to do a lot more research. And that's where the research piece comes in. Yeah. So this particular step, the the takeaway being, is it just bullet points of understanding for that target audience, which then later will help us craft the message? Is that the takeaway for this step? So the takeaway is to really do, if you haven't been part of your target market or if you're not part of your target market, then to do a lot of research. And you can do research a couple of ways. You can do it through observation, through, for example, you might join a Facebook, let's say you're targeting dentists. You might join a dental Facebook group, see what's the conversation that's going on? What are they concerned about? What are pressures and problems that are happening in their industry so that you can speak intelligently to some of the things that they're thinking. The second way is to do surveys. Now, surveys have their place. The problem with surveys is people lie on surveys, right? People say, no, I don't like Big Macs. I like eating vegetables and fruit, uh, <laughs> you know, so, but guess what? When it comes to lunchtime, they go through the, through the McDonald's drive through So surveys are useful to a point, but I like to co- combine them with observing, you know, the target market in the wild, so to speak, whether it be on online groups, on forums, in-person events and things like that, and really get an understanding of what's going on in the industry and what's going on in, in the target market. 
think that makes sense because then you start to submerge yourself with that audience, get a feel for what's going on, and it leads into step number three, which is then around putting the message because now you've got very clear on what that message is. You need to put the message in front of them where they are. So, yeah, how, how does this stage work? Yes. So step number three is choosing your advertising media. So it's the bridge between your target market and your message. How do you get your message to your target market? And that's through advertising media. And that could be online media, Facebook, Google ads and all of that. It could be offline media, whether it be direct mail, postal mail, whatever else, print advertising and that sort of thing. So this is typically the most expensive part of your marketing process. So Mm -hmm. this is where I highly recommend get a media specialist to help you here. So get that Facebook ad specialist or get that Google ad specialist to help you because they'll pay for themselves because the, the amount of mistakes that you'll make and the amount of the amount that it'll cost you, they'll probably recover more, more than that in their fees. So get a specialist to help you with media. Now, with selecting media, a lot of people think that, hey, it's all about social media. It's all about being on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and all of that. And they're great platforms, but mm. you really need to, diversify here. I recommend that you have four or five different media that you can use to reach your target audience. And sure, Facebook, Instagram, and all of that can can be one of them, but you want to have multiple pillars. You don't want to be single source dependent because I remember back in the day when everyone was putting up cheap ads on Google and then Google did the Google slap and quality scores and all of that that destroyed businesses overnight. Same with Facebook. You used to be able to reach your whole Facebook audience free. Then they came in and said, no, we, you can only reach a small percentage now unless you boost your ads and all of that sort of stuff. So you don't want to be reliant on a single piece of media. You want to have a few different ways that you can reach your clients and your client base and not be single source dependent. Yeah. And the time to test that is usually when other sources are working. Like yeah. You don't want to wait yeah. until... You get the Google slap and then scramble Indeed. for those sources as well. Indeed. So that, that makes perfect sense. So, and all of this fits into the before phase. That makes yep. perfect sense because the person hasn't yet become aware of you. So we get clear mm-hmm. on who that person is. We then tailor the message and get deep into their psychology and then we put that message in front of them. And then that then takes us to step number four in the process. Yeah. So step number four is when your ideal target market, they've heard or seen your message via the advertising media and they've raised their hand. They've said they've either clicked on your ad or maybe phoned into your office or whatever else and said, look, I'm vaguely interested in what you've got to offer. So something's caught their eye. The message is connected, which is great. And so this is all about starting to build your database and your future pipeline of prospects. So we want to build that pipeline of people who are ready to buy in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, because here's the thing that we know. We know that on average, maybe about 3% of your target market is ready to buy today. What that means is there's another 97% who are possibly ready to buy in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a year, two years. It's funny, I had a guy who recently signed up for my high-level coaching program and I said, how long have you been on my mailing list? And he said, two years, right? So two years ago, I had have said, oh, this guy doesn't want to sign up, so he's a tire kicker or a time waster. That would have been a missed opportunity. And this, this is not an isolated case. This happens all the time. If you think about any time that you go to purchase anything that's of reasonable value, you're probably going to start doing some research 
30 days, 60 days, 90 days out, maybe a year out, depending on what it is. Maybe it's a car, maybe it's a house, maybe it's something smaller, even a phone or some technical gadget or whatever else. You're probably going to be doing that research sometime in advance. It's highly unlikely you wake up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'm going to buy a car today. You know, So you've probably done some research. You've probably done some Googling. You're, tr- you're looking at reviews. So if you can be that person who captures their details. And yes, of course, people who are ready to buy right now, of course, help them out and convert them. But there's no special ability in that. Anybody convert someone who says, hey, I'm ready to buy right now. Everyone knows how to sign up that kind of client. And that's great when that happens. But the good marketers are the ones who know, right, how do we convert someone who's ready to buy later on in the piece, who's ready to buy 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And that's really what lead capture is all about. Yeah. And I think it makes your advertising dollars go that much further as well because you're now able to convert more of those initial clicks through to sales when compared to someone who's just going for the person ready to buy right now. I love this idea of getting them into the funnel. So what are some ideas on how you would then actually get them into opting in or what that capture looks like for this particular step? Obviously, we... Uh We've run an ad, we've made sure that the message resonates with them, we've touched on a a pain point or a a conversation we know that's going on inside their head. And then, yeah, how does that sort of connect there? Yeah, so look, there are multiple ways we can get them onto our database. So everybody knows or uh, should know the the squeeze page or the opt-in page. So where we direct them to a landing page where literally they've got one of two options. They've got, they can enter their email address or they can leave. There's similar versions of that on Facebook and other platforms. The offline versions might be where where they might respond via a mail-in or they might respond via a particular phone number that we create. So we can provision a phone number where we know that anyone who's called that phone number has come via an ad. So it's trackable. So we know, right, we've run this ad, it's cost us $1,000 and we've had 50 phone calls as a result. And then out of those 50 phone calls, we know that 20 wanted more information and out of those 20, 10 ended up purchasing. So we can really do tracking at every point in the in the process, whether it's online or offline. Yeah, so the key being have some form of tracking, that's obviously critical, and then some form for that person to be able to stick up their hand and say, hey, I'm vaguely interested, interested yep. enough to give you some form of contact information and then we kind of move into the next phase when then you get to start to nurture that person because obviously not everybody's ready to purchase right now. Some people you can shake loose and go straight to sale but others, you know, and you talk about it in the book where you talk about the farming side of things. Mm, Yes, and and so that naturally leads us into step five which is lead nurturing. So we've, we've done the hard work, we've got the interest, we've got someone who's raised their hand and said, hey, I'm vaguely interested. And that moves us into step number five, which is nurturing those leads. And very much as you said, David, it's about being that farmer. So what does a farmer do? A farmer spreads their seed, they water it, they take care of it, and then harvest time comes. And that's when they they reap the harvest. And that's how I like to think of myself as a marketer because mm. there's the other type of marketer who who's a hunter right who goes out there in the morning and tries to sh- kill their prey and sometimes they come back home with a kill and and they have a great feast and sometimes they don't and there is a place for for hunting i'm not saying all all hunting is bad but you want a combination of, of both strategies because you want to have predictability when it comes to leaf flow you don't want to have that feast and famine roller coaster ride where 
one day you're doing great, the next day you're not. You want to start get some consistency. And so getting that pipeline of future prospects working and it's not where you're just creating a pipeline and you're just being a pest following up constantly. Hey, are you ready to buy now? Hey, are you ready to buy now? It's where you're positioning yourself as a trusted educator, someone who can be trusted, who's an authority, and you're bringing genuine value. I say to people a lot of the times, the best way to demonstrate that you can help someone is to actually help them, right? Help them before yeah. they become a paying client, right? So, and then think about it from a, the client, from the prospect's perspective, would you rather deal with someone who was just a salesman salivating for their next commission, following up constantly like a pest or someone who's actually already helped you, demonstrated that they can actually help you by actually helping you and they seem like the logical person to buy from. It's a great way to keep yourself front of mind, like having that autoresponder sequence that is education-based. A great place to start for this one is just thinking about what frequently asked questions are and have those questions answered in some form of a, an autoresponder sequence. And it's, yeah, really about this idea of, I think farming is the best analogy because you're, you're able to attend to quite a large crop Mm. Uh, at one point in time and it's not until you know the fruit really starts to show that you then can move into the next phase that that conversion phase so i feel like farming is yeah definitely about working the largest crop you can and then that kind of leads us into the conversion because you mentioned about that idea of that that educator I almost feel like you know when we move into the conversion point that's probably a better place as well to be a bit more of the hunter in all mm-hmm. the lead up you kind of you know we're just planting and growing and tending to the crop and then when the time's right then turn into the hunter don't become yeah. hunter so early before you've had a chance to to build that crop up exactly exactly it's the dating before proposing marriage right yes yeah. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) And then look, when we move into step number six, which is sales conversion, hopefully if you've done the first five steps right, this should be a very natural process. There should be nothing weird. You know, it's kind of like a lot of people are going into chapter number six or step number six thinking, all right, what are the really cool closes that we're going to do? How are we going to close them? ABC, always be closing and all, all, all that sort of stuff. And if you've ever been either on the sales side or on the customer side of like high pressure sales, it feels weird, right? It feels weird to be the salesman kind of trying to do weird closes and trying to put pressure on people to, to buy. And as a, certainly as a consumer, I've been on, on that side as well. And that feels weird as well. And so really, if you've done the first five steps right, if you've selected your target market, if you've got your messaging right, if you've reached them with advertising media, if you've nurtured them and captured them, when it comes to step number six, it should be natural. It should be, all right, well, look, are we a good fit for each other? And if we are, great, then let's work together. And yes, there are ways that you can price and package and position yourself so, to make that smoother and easier. But really, you don't want to skip the first five steps because they're critical to making the sales process very, very easy, very natural, very authentic. And that's really what you want. As a salesperson, you don't want to have to put pressure, constant pressure, because pressure is where, where people start doing weird stuff. That, that's where they start giving you the silent treatment, avoiding you. You email them and you say, hey, I'm just following up on the proposal and they're not replying. That's because you've introduced pressure into, into the situation. So what you want to do in sales is diffuse pressure. So there, And obviously, it's going to depend on different 
types of businesses, what this conversion point looks like, you know, an e-commerce type business versus let's say consultative service type business where you're selling something. What are some ideas around like, what is it that we're trying to get into place at this point? Are we talking about a script or are we talking about, hey, you need to get to the point where the person can again raise their hand and say, hey, now I'm interested in having a, a buying discussion. Yeah. How do you talk through that? Yeah. The best way I can put it is to say, we want to go from, we don't want to be a pest. We want to be a welcome guest. So we want to be, if you think about pest versus welcome guest, you know, imagine you you get a a phone call that's interrupting your dinner and it's a telemarketer and it's like, hi, I'm from, I'm selling you this and all of that. And it's like, how do I get this pest off the phone? Whereas imagine you get that same phone call, it's interrupting your dinner and it's a long lost friend that you haven't heard from for ages. You don't care that your dinner's going cold and, and all that. You, you, hey, David, how are you? It's been ages. What have you been up to? And all of this sort of stuff. So how can you be that in the business sense? of? So how can you be that person who's a welcome guest, transition from being the pest salesman who's just following them up, who just wants the sale, to someone who's actually helping them? And they've gotten to the stage where, you know what? They do need your solution. They do need what you're offering. And if we think of like a, something that's got a very short sales cycle, maybe e-commerce, that could be as simple as a person on live chat who's answering the questions that they've got, who's helping them, okay, uh, what's the difference between that product and that product? Is it available in blue or green or whatever? And even if that stuff is already on the website, having a human being to have that conversation and help them through the process, that's hugely valuable. And maybe in in a consulting perspective, that might be a discovery call to understand What's going on in their business? What are some of their needs? What are some of their frustrations right now? Where do they want to be in six to 12 months? And working through that process and then deciding at the end of that call, hey, are we right for each other? Mm -hmm. It feels like at each one of these steps as we go through the canvas, it feels like some are systems that you might do like once or initially once to go through your nine other steps are going to have systems that would be repeated because this one feels like something, you know, hopefully you're going to have lots of conversions. So you're going to be having lots of those discussions and things like that. As someone goes through each one of these, you just, it's almost like you want to make sure you have something in place. And I think what I like most about this framework, and it's, I suppose, demonstrates a strong framework is when it can be applied to lots of different situations. Mm -hmm. You know, this will apply to every single business. So rather than being extremely prescriptive around, hey, okay, at this point, we're having a sales discussion. Well, that'll depend on your business. But as long as you have something in place for one of these things and you give each step some consideration, I think, yeah, you'll be well on your way. And then that kind of leads to the next step. Another thing that I like about this framework is that it considers the delivery of the product or service is still part of the marketing. A lot of people, when they think about marketing, you know, they've stopped after line number one or maybe line number two, but can you kind of take us through this next step and why it's so critical and you include it as part of marketing? A lot of people think marketing ends when the sale is done or when the prospect is passed on to the sales department. And to me, nothing could be further from the truth. The best marketing is embedded into the deliverable. And so that brings us to step number seven, which is the start of the after phase. And that's really where the money is made. And step number seven is all about delivering a world-class experience. How can you turn people from being just a transaction to being raving fans? As I mentioned in the, in the first step, 
a dollar from a raving fan is not equal from someone who's just buying from you just uh, because they've bought from you for lowest price or as a commodity or whatever else. And so you find in a lot of businesses, there's what's called polluted revenue. So, you know, there's that client that's paying you a lot of money, but they're a real pain to work with. Or there's, you know, the guy who always wants to speak with a CEO and who's never satisfied and all of that sort of stuff. And then there's kind of like the raving fans who are there, who support you, who always buy your next product, who pay on time, who say good, leave you good reviews and things like that. And so a dollar from them is far, far more valuable than a dollar from the polluted revenue type of clients. And so that's why you want to be very, very careful about who you focus on in terms of your marketing. And so you want to build that tribe of raving fans. You want to give them what they need but you also want to give them what they want. And so, because people respond to what they want, right? So if, when you're looking for an exercise program, right, you might want six pack abs and I do want six pack abs. I'm a bit far from, <laughs> far from it at the moment, but you know, I'll click on an ad that says, Hey, I'll show you how to get six pack abs, but then you've got to give me what I need because that's a new, might be a nutrition program, an exercise program or, or whatever else. But if you led with, hey, we've got a great nutrition program or a great exercise program, that would be of no interest to me. So mm-hmm. you kind of got to give people what they want before you can give them what they need. And so that's part of creating that tribe of raving fans. And you want to create a bit of theater about, about around what you do, get around your deliverable. So it's not just you give me the money, I give you the stuff, and then it's over. It's about creating that ongoing relationship and thinking much further than the initial transaction. This particular step, and this seems to be, at least from when we look at things from a systemizing business point of view, this really is where some of the biggest difference is between businesses. One, a lot of businesses do this very poorly. Mm. Uh, they're, they're not the best on having consistent delivery through f- for the um, product or service. And it's not necessarily well thought out. And obviously it will vary dramatically depending on what it is that you're selling and, and how that experience would look like. But what is the way that you think through this step? Again, thinking about the deliverable for this step, are we thinking, hey, here's the chronological order at which we go through to deliver the product or service? Is that like um, a written down document? Yeah. And this is where business systems come into it. You're an expert at business systems, Dave. Uh, uh, This is where you need System Hub, right? (laughs) So like, you know, say what you will about McDonald's. You may like it, you may not like it. And, you know, I'm an expert at McDonald's because I've worked there, right? That was one of my first jobs. And I don't want people to think I was just flipping burgers at McDonald's, right? That would have been my job if had I got promoted, right? <laughs> I was actually in the back cleaning out the grease vats at 2 a.m. But that aside, <laughs> one of the things about working at McDonald's, right, you've got these pimply teenagers who can't be trusted to make their bed running a multi-million dollar enterprise. And how are they doing it? Because the fryer beeps when the fries need to come out. When you squeeze the sauce, it exactly the right amount comes out. There's a checklist on training. There's a checklist on literally everything. And so they use a combination of business systems and technical systems to make sure that it's always a consistent experience. Your Big Mac is always going to be the same, no matter where you go, especially within the same country, of course, across countries there there might be slight regional differences, but you can be sure that it's going to come out pretty much the same every time, whether you like it or, or not. And so how can you use those business systems and those technical systems to, to reduce friction and to deliver a very consistent experience to your clients? And so 
that's something that that's very very important, and that something that I know you've you've focused a lot of your time and energy on, Dave. Yeah, one thing that I've started to realise more and more is how important the human element is and the people component of business as well. I love to get, you know, I would much prefer amazing people with average systems mm-hmm. because together they'll create an amazing result as opposed to having, you know, amazing systems and mm. average people because then oftentimes, you know, the average people will always yeah. bring everything down to their standards. So it's, it's almost like finding that that balance between having a, a good framework that very smart people can work in so they can do their best work. Mm-hmm. And I find sometimes, you know, if maybe if you were building a hamburger business, you would go to that nth degree and depending on who you're recruiting for a particular role would dictate the, the level of detail that you need to go into a system. Like obviously if you're recruiting teenagers to flip hamburgers you go down into that minute detail because the turnover is so high because you can't get them to make their own bed whereas sometimes you know if you're going up for higher skilled team members who might have been with you for a longer time you might not go into as much detail but you still give them almost like the rules of the game it's like you know here is the the boundary i want you to operate in between here are the steps i want you to go through to allow them to create the work or to do their best work. So there's always a fine line there. I, I, it's funny when McDonald's comes up and you've opened the book here by saying <laughs> about systems. With um, McDonald's, I always I have a love-hate relationship about bringing them up when thinking about systemization because on one hand, they are the poster child of systemization. Oh. Oh. Uh, but on the other hand, people then look at, oh, we should systemize like McDonald's but they've been doing it for 60 years. Yeah. It's almost like you, you want to think, how did McDonald's start systemizing years ago? Where did they get started and start there first? I've got to be careful. You're, you're <laughs> and we'll be no, off and running. No, you're, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. The takeaway here, I love the, the framework and the way that it, it addresses this entire customer journey. So then we kind of move through to you have delivered the core product or service. You've effectively identified your raving fans and those people that you want to work with long-term. Now, how do we kind of move them to the next step and yeah, turn them into a lifelong customer? Yeah. So I've had the privilege of running many businesses over the years and one of the things I've loved is that customers have followed me from one business to another, even though some of the businesses have had nothing to do with each other. So I've had tech businesses, I've had marketing businesses, and it's all about creating those customers for life. And so step number eight is all about increasing lifetime value. How can you be that voice of value who continues to work with someone at least for a long time within this business, but who knows, maybe across businesses. And, you know, it's because people have had a great experience with you. They know that you're going to always take care of them and take care of their interests. And so thinking about lifetime value is how do we uh, get someone to buy from us in more volume, in more frequency, in higher quality, or move them up to the next level in the program? Not selfishly, but as an exchange of value, how can you give them more so that they get a better result? And I'll give you an example. Like recently, I um, I switched to ISPs, internet service providers, and it was because my current ISP was just really, really slow. It was just bogging down with streaming and, and all of that. And it's because I initially signed up with them where before the days of Netflix and Spotify and all of that streaming and all of that. And it 
the product was fine then. It was quite quite fast. But then you bring in video, you bring in Netflix, you bring in all of that stuff, and then it's no longer fit for purpose. Now, what my ISP should have done is seen, hey, it looks like this user is maxing out their capacity every single day. Maybe we should give them a call and move them to the next plan up or move them to a higher speed or whatever. And I would have appreciated that. And that would have stopped a churn event. That would have stopped me looking around in the marketplace and seeing, okay, who's offering a better service or a faster service or, or whatever. So it's really making sure that what you offer is fit for service for someone, not just today, but down the track. So if someone started with you on, on your $1,000 a month program, maybe in a year's time, they're ready for your $5,000 program, but you need to take that initiative. You know, you can't assume that they know what you've got to offer and that they'll automatically ask you to move up to the next level because when they're ready for that $5,000 program, if you haven't been in touch with them, if you haven't been that voice of value who's communicating with them on a regular basis, that could possibly create a churn event. They might go out to market and say, okay, who's offering a, a higher level of service that I can use? The, again, with the deliverable on this one, what are some some ways to do that? Because you mentioned a few things there. You know, ongoing communication is probably part of it. I looking at the client, like what what are some things that you do to really yeah focus in on improving that lifetime value? Yeah, so so there's a few things. So a lot of people haven't raised their prices for a long time. So. And on average, if you take into account inflation, that means that you're actually selling your product cheaper and cheaper over time if you're keeping price steady. So look at potentially raising your prices. A lot of people are afraid of doing that. And so a way to get around it, you might grandfather your existing clients on their current price level and you might have the price increase apply only to new clients. So that's one way. Another way is upselling, you know, going back to McDonald's, the would you like fries with that, right? Yeah. So what else could you offer that's non-competitive but complementary that would increase the value of your offering? The next thing is ascension. So would someone be better off on the next version up of your product, you know, the, the next series or the next, the premium version or, or whatever else? The next factor that we look at is frequency. You know, um, if they're buying once a year now, would they be better off buying every six months or buying every three months? Would that add value to their lives? Is that something that would they'd be better off with? So, mm-hmm. or better still, could you put them on a recurring, you know, on a subscription or a membership service? You know, we're, there's a lot of businesses where you think they could never be subscriptions, but you know somehow people turn them into one. Like if you think about cheap razor blades, right? Yeah. Dollar Shave Club came in and created a subscription service out of that. Ended up selling out to I think Gillette or Unilever or something like that for a billion dollars. Who ever thought a cheap razor blade would be a subscription service? They were genuinely useful, right? Because it was a pain to go and buy razors and then you're looking through a hundred different versions and they're all overpriced. So someone's sending you a cheap razor for a subscription service, that adds value to your life. Yep. So the takeaway here then might be to look for at least a few, let's say three opportunities on on how you could almost like build mini systems around touch points that are going to be relevant to your existing clients with a view to lock them in longer for life or offer more products or services. Yeah. Yep. That makes good sense. And then that takes us then through to the last step, which is around getting them to then your best raving customers then to introduce you to some of their friends and, and send you referrals. Yeah. How does that kind of fit into the mix? Yeah. So the last step is called orchestrating and stimulating referral. And as the title expresses, it's an act 
active process. It's not something a lot of people kind of hope and pray for referrals and they kind of squeamish about asking for them because they feel like, you know, you're, you're begging for business or you're, you're looking needy. But there are ways to position that so that that's not the case. And if you think about the psychology of referrals, like if you, Dave, if you think about the last mm-hmm. time that you recommended someone a restaurant or a movie or something like that, were you trying to do a favor to the movie chain or to the restaurant or whatever? Yeah. Unlikely. It was it yeah. was because you had a great time and you wanted your friend to have a great time. And so it's actually you were doing yourself a favor and your friend a favor. So by making that referral. So understanding the psychology of, of referrals and then tapping into that process where you can basically be embedded in that and make that something uh, part of your deliverable is where you actually bring that up up front. So rather, what a lot of people say is, look, I'll do a really good job for him. And then at the end, I'll ask if he can give me a referral. Whereas I like to bring that up at the start. I like to say, look, Dave, I'm going to do a really great job for you. And, you know, the way we get a lot of our business is through referrals. And, you know, I'd massively appreciate it if you can keep in mind other people like you because you're an awesome customer. You're an ideal kind of customer. And I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And I'm sure, uh, you know, you know other people in a similar situation to you. So I'd, I'd massively appreciate it if you keep me in mind for, for uh, other referrals. So. Uh, positioning yourself that way but also rather than just asking is arming them so give them something of value that they can pass on and so as an example I do that with my book practically anyone um, that I deal with on a business basis I send them a couple of books one for them and one to give away to a friend or a colleague Uh, so because that's something of value that they can pass on so what's something of value that your customers or prospects can pass on? Can you give a gift voucher that, that their friend or relative can redeem or or a free trial or something that they can pass on of value where someone can have a bit of a taste of what you do before they buy from you? Yeah, yeah. it makes good sense. And I, I can see as we've gone through all nine how, like I said at the start, this is almost like the minimum viable marketing system that you want to deploy because you need to have each of these components because they support each other. If you have a rubbish delivery then, the, or even a rubbish sales or conversion process, they're not going to want to refer their friends. Of course. Of course. And that's why we, we talk about the delivery and the product being very much part of marketing because if you can create that sense of theatre and if you can create those raving fans, that's going to bring put fuel on the fire when you ask for referrals or when you try to reach your target market. Whereas if you've got a crappy product or a crappy service and a deliverable and you're, you're just trying to use marketing to push that, that's going to be an uphill battle because you know, you're going to have to pay a lot for media. You're going to have to deal with a lot of bad reviews. You're going to have to deal with a, a lot of support issues. So that's going to make the marketing process much, much harder. Whereas if you've got a great product, great service, people love it. You're building that tribe of raving fans. There's a specific person who knows that you can help them. Well, that's going to make your whole marketing and conversion process so much easier. Mm. I know you've seen the application of this process in hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of businesses around the world. Once they go through this, so I'm imagining you're going through each step because it is goes in a, a nice linear order. Uh-huh. I suppose one question I've got is, do you ever take it out of order depending on what's going on in the business or is it good you go through each one and, you know, obviously if they've got something in place, that just means you move more quickly to the next step? Yeah, look, it's mostly a linear, a linear process, but you're right. Like someone might have their messaging 
just nailed, right? So yep. we don't need to spend a lot of time on messaging or, or maybe they know exactly who their target market is and they know that they can help them. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on that. Maybe we'll, we'll brush it up or whatever, but maybe they need a lot of help with, okay, how do we nurture them? How do we create risk reversal and, and guarantees and things like that? So yeah, it is a logical linear process, but yeah, you don't have to spend a lot of time on areas that you've already got nailed and that are working all really well for you already. Yeah. And then beyond that, once you've deployed some of these things or, or the different stages, what does the steps beyond that? Is that something where you loop back around and you start the process again? How does that work? Yeah. Then we really get into metrics and optimization. So we're looking at, okay, how many leads are we getting through on our front end? How many people are at what, what's our churn rate? What's our retention rate? And it's really about how do we improve our numbers? How do we get a, reduce our churn rate from 5% to 3% or yeah. how to increase our conversion rate from you know 20% to 25% or, or whatever it is? So we monitor the numbers and then we optimize each step of the process. Uh, see, I didn't know that. But what I love about that is your thinking is very much aligned with the way that I see things. Optimization needs to come after you've got your baseline into place because now you know you've got everything in place you can get metrics you can start to watch then as well when you start to adjust something to improve the number of referrals or improve your delivery you can then see what the onflow effect to some of the other metrics are rather than just dealing with them isolated i see some people they'll try and optimize and make it just perfect right up front mm -hmm. and then that may not impact other areas very yep. well it can also delay just the implementation because you're trying to make it just right. Yep. And some people just don't have enough volume for optimization. I mean, there's no point running A-B split tests when you've got yeah. 100 people a month coming to your website or whatever. So you need to start fixing the fundamentals and getting, yeah. getting those fundamentals right. And then when you've got hundreds of thousands of visitors coming to your site, then let's, let's do some of the split testing and worry whether blue converts better than red or, or whatever it is. That's and probably the right time to, to go ahead and, and contact Alan at that point because you're firing at that point and you want the, the expert input. So I really appreciate you taking the time to take us through the framework. I don't know if there are any final points, particularly with the plan that you want to go through. Or, or Look, I think in terms of the plan, I think we covered it well. What I'd leave the audience with is the best marketer wins every time. And, I, you know, I've learned that the difficult, painful, expensive way. And I, I want people to understand that, yes, having a great product or great service is super important, but that's a customer retention tool. Before we think about customer retention, we need to be thinking about customer acquisition. And, you know, I wish the best product and service just automatically meant that you would dominate the, the marketplace. And, you know, and I wish firefighters and nurses were the ones who got, got paid most in our society, you know, but that's not the case, you know, it's not the, the deserving who win, it's the people who do the best job of marketing and, and getting themselves out there and connecting themselves to the marketplace that, that win, unfortunately. Uh, so, well, fortunately or unfortunately. So just understanding that, that understanding that it's the best marketer that wins. So you need to go from being that accountant, that IT guy, that e-commerce guy to really being a marketer first and then an accountant, IT guy, lawyer or whatever else second. So you're a marketer of IT services. You're a marketer of legal services. And so understanding that the best marketer wins every time. So it's your job to become a really good marketer. 
I think, I mean, a great way to get started and get their marketing right is to get themselves a copy of the book. So um, if they want to, where's the best place for them to grab a copy of that? And I know you also have some tools and things like that that you can download. Maybe if you can point people in the right direction to find out a bit more about your work. Yeah, so you can download a copy of the One Page Marketing Plan Canvas for free on my website, which is successwise.com. You can grab the book wherever books are sold, Amazon, of course, Barnes & Noble, Dimex, everywhere everywhere that books are sold. Um, yeah, so they're probably the best two places to connect at successwise.com and grab a copy of the book. Perfect. Thanks again, Alan, for your time. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure. You've just been listening to the System Hub Podcast. Remember, we've documented this system for you so you can literally swipe and deploy it within your business. Head to www.systemhub.com forward slash podcast to download it now.